Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you've traveled to and from Sacramento International Airport over the last few years, you know the experience can seem easy or at times frustrating. Since Terminal B expanded several years ago, there have been the addition of new amenities, restaurants, the People Mover Shuttle, as well as modern gates. But the terminal, which is really the main hub for Southwest Airlines, along with a few others, can get busy, like really, really busy. At peak times, the parking lot can fill up quickly, the security line can be long, and getting to and from the rental car or rideshare areas takes time, which can impact your flight or just getting home quickly after a long travel day. And Terminal A has been needed to be up for years. Yesterday, Sacramento County announced a $1.3 billion expansion and improvement plan, which should modernize both terminals and improve parking, rental cars, and ride sharing for years to come. Joining us now is Cindy Nickel, Director of Sacramento County Department of Airport, to talk more about these big changes coming to SMF. Welcome, Cindy. Good morning. Thanks, Vicki. It's great to be here. So many of us who have lived here for a while remember the airport before these major Terminal B expansion, as well as the upgrade. Walk us through the history of Sacramento International Airport and its evolution. Sure. So, you know, obviously it's um, grown over time as the passenger numbers have increased. We're a medium hub airport. And um, initially there was just one terminal. Then Terminal A was the new terminal. Um, and uh, Terminal B was getting sort of older and older. And so uh, in 2011, that terminal was replaced by a new terminal and concourse that are connected by an automated people mover. Hmm. Before we get into the details of what's coming to the airport in this latest expansion, how did this latest financial investment come about? Was it due to customer feedback or the need? Has the need come from passenger traffic, which has increased over the years? Yes, indeed. You know, we pay attention to the needs of all of our stakeholders. And among other things, yes, parking is one key metric. And we've come, oddly, Columbus Day is the busiest day that we have for parking, which is different from any other airport I've ever worked in. But um, so we came within 200 spaces out of our 18,000 of running out out of room for parkers. So, you know, we've known for some time that parking was a key challenge. Also, people have changed their behavior and tend to park in the garage now, so we need more garage parking. Secondly, we also hear from our airlines. So Southwest, for example, is interested in adding gates. Um, Other airlines are interested in in, uh, adding service, and we're always marketing for new service to especially Europe or Asia. Um, So we just need more gates. Yeah. Well, let's focus on Terminal B. I mean, it it looks good as it is. There's definitely a lot of people taking selfies in front of that red rabbit, either when they land in Sacramento or taken off. But what is the need specifically in Terminal B? So Terminal B, we have several needs. One is we need to add six to eight gates, which will probably be added to the uh, west end of the terminal of the concourse, excuse me. Um, We also, um, that automated people mover I mentioned, it works, oh, 98, 99% of the time, but when it's not working, people have to walk in between the guideway, which gets increasingly narrow and steep and exceeds ADA standards. So we're going to be adding a pedestrian walkway uh, that will have moving sidewalks and a hub where to transition levels from Terminal B is at a higher level than the than the concourse, so it'll be a um, elevators and escalators to basically transition down. 
Um, so that's that's going to be really critical to adding capacity. And people like me who just want to walk will be able to just walk. Yeah. Given that you're proposing to add those six to eight more gates, is that specifically just for Southwest Airlines or is the goal to give more room for additional air, air carriers? We have not designated who's going to take those gates. Um, we do know that, that Southwest would like to have more. Um, we understand other airlines have growth plans. So um, we're, we're open-minded about that. It's it's not going to be available for a while, probably not till the summer of 2027. So we have some time to figure that out. But yeah. the airlines did have an opportunity, by the way, all the airlines who are part of our, our signatory to our agreement here had the ability to vote the projects down. And they we heard on Tuesday that they did not do that. So that's a great sign of support from them. What was the biggest piece of feedback you've received from airlines that operate out of Terminal B? Um, you know, they're they're just concerned about the crowding and, and needing more more gates to be able to provide more flights. Yeah. With the addition of gates, I mean, I know a lot is still in limbo. We got about four years, but could this potentially include the addition of more nonstop routes? Yes, you know, we're always marketing for for more routes. Actually, this is an interesting statistic. The busiest route in the United States that's not served is between here and Orlando. Really? And so, yes. So we are pushing, we're always looking at the statistics. Where are people trying to go, especially where they have to hub through somewhere else? And we try, we go and we meet with the airlines. We can't just tell them, nor can the FAA tell them to start flights to certain locations. So we have to convince them and show them how many people want to fly and that they can make money doing that. Yeah. I mean, getting to the East Coast can be can be a challenge. It could be one or two layovers sometimes. So I can understand that. You touched yes. upon parking and how, you know, it was kind of a squeeze at the end of last year. I, I know you were doing some renovations as well to some parking spots. Mm-hmm. I know from personal experience, it got kind of nerve wracking in some moments, wondering if we were actually going to get a spot. So parking can be tricky, especially on those busy travel periods like you talked about on holidays, even a random Friday. So where are these new parking spots, the parking building, where will it be? And will it just be for Terminal B or will it also be shared with Terminal A? So the new garage, um, if you are familiar with with Terminal B, there's a a, a elevated walkway that goes um, across the the inbound roadway. Uh, And then there's some stairs and elevators to nowhere. So that's where on the west side of Terminal B is where the new garage will be. So people will likely choose, people who are coming to Terminal B will likely choose it and then and not A, which will free the existing garage for people in in who are going to Terminal A, but they can park anywhere they want and yeah. walk further if they want. How long could that take, the parking additions? So the parking project, um, we are expecting to open it in the spring of 2026. Another component is rideshare, which has really picked up in recent years, and also the rental car pickup and returns. Yeah. I mean, both are, they're a haul <laughs> from the airport. Uh, you got to take a shuttle to get to the rental car pickup, and ride sharing is you, you have to walk across the street and go down an area, which can be confusing for people who aren't from Sacramento or haven't traveled through the airport. What improvements yeah. are going to be made w- on both of these fronts? So we're going to centralize where all of our ground transportation happens. That's TN- the TNCs, transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft, um, taxis, shuttle buses, regional transit, and commercial vehicles, all will be centralized between the two terminals. So 
um, we think that that will be more convenient and obvious for people. Are these changes modeled after other airports that maybe people might be familiar with? We look at um, other airports. You know, Nashville is doing something like a transportation uh, center, a ground transportation center. Um, You know, some airports have rail to the airport. We would like to ultimately combine that. um, But unfortunately, um, getting rail all the way out to the airport did not pass in the ballot measure in November. Um, So, but we're preserving the right of way for that. Um, so we do look at other airports. The, the consolidated rental car facility is something that we very much are uh, looking at what other airports have done. And um, our number one complaint is people who have to take the bus. And so by bringing it closer in, people will be able to walk. And our whole goal is to make our terminal area a walkable campus. Yeah. And getting this feedback is because capacity and traffic has increased over recent years. So a lot of these additions and expansions are to make room for the growth at Sac International Airport. Does that also include the the TSA, the security check-in area? Will that expand as well? Because those lines can be pretty long, especially on the holidays. You know, that's a really great question. We are not planning to move the TSA checkpoint at this time. We could ultimately move it into the terminal rather than keep it out at the concourse in B. Um, We have already made a lot of improvements at the Terminal A um, TSA checkpoints. Um, It's it's bigger and brighter and um, just more modern. So that is working quite well. One thing I'll mention is we TSA does use dogs to sniff for bombs and other, you know, explosives. Um, And so that is something that's actually expedited our lines. I feel like I'm running through a laundry list of questions that like me and my colleagues have all had because we all travel out of the airport and a lot of listeners as well. So I'm going to ask about with these upgrades and expansions, if there's going to be more options for for dining or shopping in either terminal, Terminal B or Terminal A. I know with Terminal B, that Starbucks line can be a monster. It could be almost the length of what you would feel a flight would be sometimes. Yes. You know what? That's a great question. So Um, Right now, it's difficult for the concessionaires who are providing food and beverage here um, to attract um, employees. So we've had trouble. That's one of the issues that we've had. So we actually put in Illy coffee machines, which are very popular in Europe. And so that's an alternative. But longer term, basically, the first half of this year, we're going to be putting out um, a request for um, qualifications for new food and beverage for 18 locations that are 30,000 square feet in our in both terminals. So we really want community involvement in this. So we put out surveys to our community and passengers um, to find out what they want. What kinds of food do they want? What kinds of offerings? What kind of price points do they want? So we got, um, I think it's over 2,500 responses to that survey. And um, so we're taking that into account in terms of what we are going to be asking for. Um, And um, so, yes, we expect to see a lot of change. Those would be put in place uh, in 2024. 2,500 responses, that seems significant. What does that signal to you? I think there's a lot of interest and pride that we have in our community and our passengers in this airport. Um, And, you know, so I think they feel like it's theirs and they want to have a voice in terms of, you know, what we offer. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about Terminal B. What improvements or expansion um, will this $1.3 billion include for Terminal A? 
Yes, thanks for that question. So in Terminal A, really the, the pinch points right now are um, the ticketing and the baggage area. So we're going to be adding a bag baggage carousel on the, um, I guess it's west side of the uh, terminal. And we'll also be adding um, more ticketing room on the east side. So just more room um, when you enter that terminal. Mm. Um, in the immediate sense, we'll probably be adding one gate to that terminal. Just because when we add the six to eight gates on Concourse B, we're going to lose two while we do the construction. So temporary, not temporarily, we're going to be adding a gate on A and also a gate on B to try to um, take care of that so we don't lose um, gates while we're doing construction. Where is this money coming from? The $1.3 billion is in taxpayer money. So how is this being funded? Thank you for emphasizing that. It is not taxpayer money. And, and basically, we have three traditional sources of money that we're using. One is uh, federal grants. Another is passenger facility charges. When you buy a ticket, you pay $450. And then also user fees. So the airlines pay for landing fees and terminal rents. We also have, as I mentioned, um, various fees that are charged to passengers. We get parking revenue. We get revenue from the food and beverage concessionaires, et cetera. Um, there are three new sources that weren't here when the new when the big build was done in 2011. One is Congress passed the bipartisan infrastructure law, which brings us about $70 million that we'll be able to use. Also, we have a customer facility charge that rental car users pay now. And there are new low cost federal loans that are available to us that we'll be taking advantage of. Given that all of these improvements are to improve the customer experience as well as just make things more convenient for passengers, but it is going to take some time. It's going to take a few years, which means there could be some, I don't know, growing pains in during that time. When does construction start and how is the airport going to try and reduce and mitigate any disruption to passengers during this time? You know, that's a great question. Um, the Most of the projects are going to be in areas that um, don't currently serve passengers, so there will be minimum uh, minimum amount of disruption for them. Um, the first project will be the pedestrian walkway that will start next summer. And the one area, so when we do the, the terminal gates, as I mentioned, we'll probably lose two gates, but that'll be walled off. And it's going to be, the construction will be in an area that, that there won't be any passengers. The one thing that may affect people is when we do the ground transportation center, we need to move some roads. So while we're changing the roads over, there could be a, a little bit of disruption that our passengers experience. But I have experience when we did this kind of project in San Francisco at the airport there. Um, I was on staff as uh, finance director and we put in place measures to make sure that it didn't it didn't disrupt people's you know activity trying to get to and from their flights. Cindy, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much. May I just say that um, we have a website now that we've launched, and uh, we're, it's a great source of information and also getting feedback from people. So it's SMF 
for so it's SMF forward, S-M-F-O-R-W-A-R-D.com, smfforward.com. Great. Thank you so much. And we'll have a link to that on our insight page as well. Cindy Great. Nickel is the director of the Sacramento County Department of Airports. Thank you for talking to us about the improvements and expansions for Sacramento International Airport. Up next, we'll learn about the great migration of African Americans during the 1900s and how it shaped the fabric of the Sacramento Valley today. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Welcome back to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The Great Migration is considered one of the greatest movements of people in United States history. Millions of African Americans leaving the oppressive and violent Jim Crow South with the hope of finding more tolerance, equity, and opportunity. According to the National Archives, this period spans from roughly 1910 to 1970, where roughly 6 million African Americans set new roots in the Midwest, the North, and the West, a number that was roughly equivalent to half of the total black population. This time period really isn't that long ago, and people who went on this uncertain and trying journey are still alive today to share their story or pass down the stories of their elders. But little is known about the experiences of African Americans during this time, and this migration has shaped the fabric of Northern California today. A professor is embarking on understanding how the Great Migration shaped the Sacramento Valley and the Bay Area. Searching for Californians who identify as African American attended a school in the Bay Area or Sacramento Valley during this period, and either they or their parents were born in the South. Joining us now is Mariama Gray, an associate professor of educational leadership at CSU East Bay, with more about her Great Migration study. Thanks for making the time, Professor Gray. Thank you for having me. So you yourself are a fourth-generation Californian. When did you start learning about the Great Migration? I actually didn't learn about the Great Migration for a very long time. Um, I'm ashamed to say that I learned about it when reading um, Isabel Wilkerson's book, um, The Warmth of Other Suns. But I had been surrounded by stories of the Great Migration throughout my entire life. I just didn't have a name for it. Right. Um, so listening to my grandmother's stories and my mother's stories, I was listening to stories of the Great Migration then. When did you start thinking about doing research and a study on this? You know, it really came from conversations with my grandmother. She grew up in Northern California. She went to schools in Grass Valley and Vallejo. And during that time, um, she really experienced a lot of anti-Blackness. So she experienced racial violence from her classmates. Um, She experienced racism in the classroom from her peers and her teachers and her school leaders. And as I listened to her story, I thought, that this was a story that I wanted. I wondered if other African-Americans had encountered. I was curious about their educational experiences. Um, and, and really what we know about the Great Migration is that there are lessons that the elders of this generation, who are still alive and with us, um, can teach us about the problems that we're facing in education today. Mm. For those who may be learning of the Great Migration for the first time, actually putting a name to this, as, as you just touched upon, how do you explain it to people? 
Well, you, you did a great job in your introduction. So I explained it in very similar ways. It's the mass migration, really the fleeing of 6 million African Americans from the South to the North, to the West, to the East, um, for really three reasons. So economic exploitation, um, racial violence, and political disenfranchisement. African-Americans in the South were hearing from some of their colleagues and also recruiters and newspapers in the North that there was improved opportunity for them, economic opportunity um, for sure, and that racial relations were improved to some extent. And so, and they were being treated brutally in the South. They were um, subject to lynching. They were um, experiencing debt peonage. And so, and they were not able to vote and change the racial spatial order of the day. And so they voted with their feet mm. and they moved out to places where maybe they could live a little bit better. Yeah. And they spanned um, or they this spans across a variety of states from the north to the Midwest to the west. When did African-Americans begin arriving and planting roots in Northern California, which is the subject of your study? So African-Americans have been in California for 4,000 about, well, about 4,000 African-Americans have lived in California since before the Great Migration started. So we've been here for a really long time. We've been here since the 1860s. Um, so African-Americans started to move, though. Um, there are many waves, but when we talk about the Great Migration between 1910 and 1940, that's our first wave. Um, and then about that time, you see maybe uh, roughly about 30,000 or so um, moving during that period, but between 1950 and 1970, you have 300,000 African Americans moving, and mostly for jobs in the defense industry and manufacturing. Yeah, so that's a significant increase. Right. Um, do you know what states from the South they were mostly coming from? Right, yeah. African Americans follow this migratory pattern of the trains because, you know, in this time, automobiles were um, expensive, so not everyone could afford to own one. So some people did travel by car, but mostly people followed the railway lines. So when you were escaping the South, you followed whatever train could get you out to the North. Um, and so African-Americans from California traveled mostly from three states because that's the rail line, uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas. Oh. You know, when I think of historically black communities just in Sacramento, I think of Oak Park and Del Paso Heights. I mean, were these directly shaped by the Great Migration? Yes. Um, there, although I want to tell you a little quick story about Del Paso Heights. Del Paso Heights comes to be because of eminent domain. There were earlier African-American communities before that. So one of the communities was around the WX Freeway. And um, due to eminent domain, the state took that land and built a freeway um, and destroyed the African-American community. And they had to find another place to live. And one of those places where they were allowed to live was Del Paso Heights. So that community is directly shaped um, by the, the Great Migration and by also just uh, disruption, um, which is pretty common with African-American communities. Oak Park was not a community that initially was open to African-American people, if you can believe it. Land Park was um, a neighborhood where there were barracks and what we would call, or what folks called then, um, projects. So that, that was a neighborhood where African-Americans lived before it was called Land Park. Um, I was rather surprised to learn that when talking to my participants. They have quite um, a, a grasp of local history. And so, um, and just General Rosemont and that, you know, Sacramento proper, those were places where African Americans lived. 
Right. I mean, I can just imagine how much you learn just from listening to people and their lived experience and what they went through and their families went through. You know, you tweeted that, you know, the experience of the children of the Great Migration in Northern California and their stories, they weren't really what you expected. And when I was looking at your thread on Twitter, um, you shared, you know, really the dangerous journey to travel from the South to the West. What safety measures did African-Americans take to get to Northern California safely? Right. So... You know, it was dangerous to leave the South because the South lost about half of its workforce during that time. And so there were white men stationed at the railway stations, um, agents who were trying to make sure that African-Americans didn't leave. Um, And so African-Americans, when they did leave, they wouldn't tell their families or friends that they were leaving. They escaped in the dead of night. Um, There are stories of African-Americans shipping themselves out of state in shipping containers. Um, and those who who took the train, um, you know, there are folks who did take the train. And then there are folks who drove. And the stories I captured of those who drove, who had the economic means to purchase a car, are pretty heartbreaking. So um, remember that this is a time period where hotels and rest stops and restaurants and gas stations and restrooms are not open to African-Americans. And so they have to really prepare when they're going to leave, especially if they've got their children and families with them. Children need food breaks, restroom breaks. Um, And so they would bring food with them. They would, you know, cook for days, enough food that would last them in case they couldn't get any food on the journey. They would gas up their cars. They would uh, travel to um, as far as they could go, try not to travel at night, And one of the most interesting things I learned from uh, some of the migrants is when they would stop, they would stop in front of the homes of other African-Americans in African-American communities. Um, One participant shared that when her family stopped um, in front of one of those homes in an African-American community, they knocked on the door, asked if they could stay for the night. The family said yes. And then they brought them food and they brought them drinks. Mm. And then they said, where are you from, dear? Uh, let me have your, your people's name and their address. And then they wrote to their people and told them, hey, your person has made it. They are safe. And while we were in that interview, we were both reduced to puddles of tears because what a powerful, loving thing um, for that person to do for their community. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about strangers, but also a solidarity of caring for one another, because even though they are strangers, they understand the risks and the struggles as black Americans, which is just incredibly powerful and the amount of compassion that was shown during that time. Another wonderful part that you share is that, you know, some of the men that you interviewed have friendships or lived in the cities that they or they've kept up with their childhood friends, basically, for over 50 years, which is just wonderful. And those are that's really like the ingredients of a tight fabric of community and relationships that must feel so special. It does. And in fact, that's how I get a quite quite a large number of my participants. you know, it's always a challenge to find um, an aging population who doesn't really access the Internet in the ways that you would expect with um, social media and during COVID. And so there's something called snowball, a pur- purposeful sampling where you ask a person, you interview a person and then you ask them, do you know anybody else who might participate in the study? And many people were able to offer their friends um, as 
folks who would participate in the study, but also in listening to these um, conversations, you began to get a, a sense of what it was like for their community when you talked to multiple people, what it was like to be African-American in, say, cities like Vallejo or Del Paso Heights or in Oakland. And I say those cities in particular because those are the places where the African-American men and women have these enduring relationships, 50, 60, 70 years in some cases. You know, given that these Californians that you're interviewing were children during yes. the Great Migration. They were born in the 1920s. Uh, what have these conversations meant to you? I mean, as as a professor and a researcher, but also as a fourth generation Californian. Everything. I have very much enjoyed um, talking with African-American elders. Um, I'm a hobbyist in genealogy myself. I love history. Um, But it's very special when someone invites you into their home and shares intimate details that are often painful about their lives. Many told me that this was the first time that they had shared these stories with their um, about their lives. And so I have this archive for each family member. Each time I interview someone, I create um, a folder with the interview, with a transcript, with all of the artifacts um, so that they can then share it with their family. I know the importance of African-American history having having started with my own family. And I know how very little African-Americans know about their family's migration journeys. Um, And then I also really um, think it's important for us um, as a community to understand these stories, these histories, um, to share them, pass them down through the generations, and for the greater state um, and and educators to know these stories as well. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio, and if you're just joining us, we're talking with Professor Mariama Gray and her story study about the great migration of African Americans from the South and how it really shaped Northern California. So although the intention, the goal of the great migration was motivated to leave racism, violence, and discrimination, that wasn't necessarily the case when African Americans arrived in Northern California. What was early life like for African Americans? Right. Yeah, it was it was pretty difficult. Um, African-Americans, as I shared earlier, were really leaving for three reasons, economic precarity, um, racial violence, um, political disenfranchisement. And they found those same things here. Um, California. Well, let's let's talk about the North. First of all, the North was not a place that was immune to lynchings of Um, African-Americans. African-Americans were lynched in Um, in Oregon and in California, surprisingly. And California had an active Klan. Um, California is a state that was founded as a segregationist state. It wasn't around during the, um, it was founded um, during a time when uh, they were able to escape the the issues going on with the Civil War, uh, but yet there were sympathizers with uh, the Southern predicament. And the Democrats were quite strong here in this state. Um, and the Democrats were the party that at the time wanted segregation and wanted slavery. Yeah, that's an important clarification. Yeah. Um, so African-Americans who come here um, in terms of economic precarity, you know, in the South, they were uh, they were uh, ex- experienced debt peonage. Right. They were uh, farmers and uh, sharecroppers, really sharecroppers, not farmers, sharecroppers. And um And in California, they came uh, to work, and what they found was they were not able to work in the high-status jobs that their white peers were able to work in. And then when they wanted to move up um, in in terms of employment, um, they were not able to move up. They were not given supervisory roles. Um, And 
In the rare case that they were, one of the participants shared that he was given a supervisory role and um, he was told by his white employees that they would not take orders from an inward. So um, that was pretty difficult. So there was a lot of employment discrimination. And then in terms of racial violence, again, there was a there were places where African-Americans knew that they could not live. Um, they were um, African-American young men in, in my study share uh, story after story of their encounters with the police. Um, and you know that now the state, um, like the nation, has a large African-American incarcerated population. And so that's another form of political disenfranchisement because when they come out, they're unable to vote. Um, so there's the political disenfranchisement there. The a piece of the story, though, that I want to tell that really comes out in the the interviews is around the um, what where African Americans are live or how they live when they first arrive. So you can imagine folks coming to the state with very little. I talked to you a little bit about debt peonage um, and about the poverty that they lived in before coming to California. So when they arrive, they don't have very much. Um, and there's also, especially folks for folks who are arriving in the 30s and 40s, there's this unexpected boom of folks, there's insufficient housing. And so, and then there's housing employment, uh, housing discrimination. And so African Americans have to figure out where to live. Um, And so they get creative. Um, They are allowed to live in in particular areas of the of the city. Because um, of redlining and, and, and basically covenants banning minorities from living in certain neighborhoods. Well, not, not only that, just outright discrimination from, um, folks who would rent to them. So they weren't even purchasing yet. Um, They wouldn't rent to them. And they live in, for example, um, multiple families live in one house. Um, One of my um, participants shared the story of living in the garage of of a house. It was, there were nine people living in one garage. So multiple families, there was uh, Richard and his cousin Bernice and all of their uncles, um, all living in a garage. And at the time, they were not too... Uh, two-car garages. They were one-car garages. They had a rope that they would string between lengthwise in the garage, and they would hang a sheet over it, and that was how they were able to create some kind of privacy. So multiple families living in a house. um, And when new families moved, they would often ask one another where to live. They would share their housing. They would share information about jobs. Um, And so that's how the African-American, early African-Americans lived. Mm -hmm. What surprised you most about everything that you've discovered from from talking to to people who are a direct lineage of the Great Migration? A lot of things were interesting and surprising to me. I think this this idea that um, when I listen to folks, it really disabused me of a lot of the a lot of the myths about the African American community. I was struck by how hardworking, how resourceful, um, and how brilliant African American great migrants are and have been. Um, when you come to a state with such little, so so little, um, and you are able to construct communities um, out of nothing. So in Del Paso Heights, they are moved, displaced, and they have to build a home. And one of my participants shared, she's an early migrant, one of the first families to move into Del Paso Heights. And she says her father built her home, but he didn't do it alone. 
other African-Americans who were moving to the community had other skills. So these are very skilled black men who barter and share and build one another's houses and end up building this still standing community of Del Paso Heights. That is amazing, the sense of community and care. And that was communicated repeatedly in the stories that I heard during this study. Yeah, and now you're documenting it too, to share with others as well. And you're still looking for more participants, right? Yes, yes. Folks are welcome to um, to email me at greatmigrationstudy at gmail.com. <laughs> Professor Gray, thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing all the important work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. And that is Cal State East Bay Professor Mariama Gray discussing her study about the great migration of African-Americans from the South and how it shaped Northern California. Professor Gray is still looking for Californians, as we just talked about, with that family lineage to the South during the Great Migration. If that sounds like you, we have a link on our Insight page to her study and how to participate. Still ahead, we're going to head to Vallejo and learn about Ashe by the Bay, a black and multicultural children's bookstore to leave you with some reading recommendation for children and adults. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Malcolm X once said, education is the passport to the future, for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. Reading is fundamental to tolerance, and seeing your culture and identity in books is really important to finding placement in the world. That is exactly what Ashe by the Bay, a Vallejo children's bookstore, is doing by providing books focused on African Americans and the multicultural experience. Joining us to talk about the mission of the bookstore and offer some reading recommendations in honor of Black History Month is the owner, Deborah Day. Good morning, Deborah. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. Good morning to you, too. Well, tell us about the Glad idea. to be here. Oh, happy to have you. Tell us about your idea. What sparked the idea to open up a Shea by the Bay in Vallejo? Well, you know, I worked for different corporations at one time, uh, moved to California, and I always knew I was going to have my own business. And for me, it was a combination of art and literature. That's When you look at children's books uh, on a, a broad spectrum, you're looking at art and literature. And so I was attracted to both and also wanting to do something to make a difference, having a uh, being a single parent, having a son, raising my son and looking for books that would help him. Uh, you know, in his education process, had search. So I knew there was a market um, for children's books, and I knew that I wanted to do something special, particularly for Black children. So, um, so I kind of started searching for books for him, and I wanted to, um, uh, you know, to find books that you know that, that were relevant to his youth development and so forth. So that kind of is what started it, you know. And so it started in your home with with your personal experience as a parent and with the son. What has the community's response been to your bookstore? Exactly. Well, I've been in business since um, really since about 2000. I'm an author and a publisher, too. So the community's response, you know, here is but a lot of people don't know I live in Vallejo, but I've been doing I started doing events all over the Bay Area. That's how I really started. And um, I would take my book and then people would say, you know, I love your book, but I have children this age. And if you can get this book. So it was a, it started as a way of me trying to help other people find books for their children. 
And then I be at events and I connect with educators and principals and people like that. And they go, oh, wow, they have a great selection of books. And it just grew organically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a challenging time at different times because I remember going to events and, and people would look at me and then they look at my books and they would, you know, sometimes I get frowns because it would mostly be books for black children. And so, you know, I, I at some point and that never bothered me because I knew uh, I had a purpose and this was part of it. And at some point, I started adding more multicultural books because I started getting requests, especially for Spanish bilingual books. But, um, you know, that that didn't deter me. I came from I come from the Midwest. We have a very strong work ethic there, um, you know, and having experienced a few things there in the Midwest and a little racism and discrimination. I don't want to just focus on that. But I had already been through that. So my mind was already set on you know, what I was going to do here now that I'm in California. And uh, I just, you know, I just saw a market and I wanted to help fill that market and, and do something to help our children. Well, given that we're at the mm -hmm. beginning of Black History Month, and I know for you, it's not just a, it's not just a month, it's, it's year round. But what would you tell someone with right. a different background that wants to learn more and wants to and wants to start by learning more from reading? What recommendations do you have? Well, you know, we, we have to make sure that our children have books that are culturally relevant, not just for their culture, but for other cultures as well. And when we can provide books like that for children, it's going to make a huge difference in how they see the world. So uh, for, for parents, I always say, you know, we got to start them young. In my collection, I have books baby to three and K through 12. So baby to three books are the little board books, you know, the little square yeah. board books that kids can handle and read. They're a little so more interactive, a, right? Like you can touch and feel stuff too. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that they can handle themselves. And so I have a huge selection of books uh, in that category, but I also have my largest category is ages four to eight. So f ages four to eight has a lot of picture books. So, you know, children are very visual. And uh, I got to say the uh, art illustration now and the types of, my illustrators are doing with the different colors and pigments and all everything has technically changed you know <laughs> so it's exciting and kids really can can zoom in on the um the high the the uh you know the um color saturation and the art it's just very good so uh, having said that picture books are, are the first thing you know that they start reading themselves and that people can really engage kids with is through art then when they open the book, you know, they start getting into the stories and uh, I just got great stories. So if you ask me what's my favorite book, it's a difficult question for me to answer because I have so many favorite books. Um, I could show you, but I have so many favorite books. I was books, looking at all I? the books that you have behind you. I mean, which is appropriate. You're an independent bookstore. But um, yeah, so I can right. totally see that. It's like choosing what, what child is your favorite. You know, there's so many to choose from. And it depends on, on the age, too, I would imagine, and where that child is in their life. Given that you're touching mm -hmm. upon, like, how artistic and vibrant these books are now, do you think that's also because, like, in the current world we live in, there's streaming services, there's television, there's video games, that that really helps develop an interest among children and particularly black children, as you're talking about, into reading and, you know, and kind of giving the screen time a break and opening up a book instead. Yeah, that books have a lot of competition right now. Kids are so distracted by all the devices and so forth, but we have to have books. So that that does help that they're uh, more engaging. 
But we also have to remember when we're talking about African-American children, we have to make sure to include culturally relevant books. Now, what does that mean? What that means? That means that these are books that they can identify with, where they see images of themselves, not just how, how they think and talk, but also in how they act. They see their communities in the art illustrations or in the stories where also they're the main character. These are these are the stories that are really important and uh and and are popular but uh important to to their own social emotional development um youth development all of this so the culturally relevant phrase you'll hear this a lot with educators um and this is what is happening in a lot of our schools is moving towards that direction in their classroom libraries or their 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 classroom libraries look like the students that are sitting in the classrooms right, mm -hmm. right. so i want to say and i don't hope i'm not getting too far off the point but that is, that is very important. By the way, I want to tell you, uh, when I started my business, my online business, I, I took the phrase, the number one black children's bookstore. I and saw I did that. this because, yeah, I wanted people to identify that with our book selection. But I also have the phrase, the largest African-American and multicultural children's bookstore, because I wanted them to know that we also have multicultural books. But my my first priority was always to African-American children because I see what was happening in the schools in terms of not having the right literature uh, for the kids to read. The books that I carry, too, we don't do textbooks. So that's another that's that's curriculum. That's another category. I focus on re, uh, books that kids would read for their own enjoyment or or books that teachers may have to support the curriculum that they have, you know, fiction, nonfiction, themed books. Um, we even carry graphic novels, we also have them, all kind of great stories. But when it comes to our history, I try to have a lot of books that focus on the different eras of our history, mm. you know, and uh, and that's that's just one category, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, we, we, we try to have a, a, a nice assortment of books that not just African-American children would be interested in, but all children. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we have an incredibly diverse area. I mean, in a state at that at that point. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about, you know, textbooks or curriculum, that's a completely different uh, subject matter. When it comes to reading for enjoyment, do you recommend parents invest in home libraries? Oh, gosh, yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that because um, I remember when I was doing events and I would tell parents, you know what? You got to build your home libraries. And the purpose was so that you can take them to the library. And that's another experience. That's great. But when they see books in their homes and stacks of books and parents are also engaging and reading the books to their kids, that's another level. And that, that has to happen so that so that kids will be ready for school. Uh, you know, and so we have books that are, are for that purpose. Uh, uh, we call childhood books. Uh, books that teach the fundamentals, books, stories that will help them in their uh, social emotional development. But yes, home libraries support reading to your child. Um, forget the organization does the read, sing, play. <laughs> I think it's first five. But I'm just saying that I'm so happy to be commercial because that is the key right there. You got to read to your child. You got to have fun. You got to make it a fun activity. And when parents can do that. That's going to make all the difference in the world. And you are an and you are an important piece of that, Deborah. Thank and you so, so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Deborah. Deborah Day is the owner of SJ by the Bay Bookstore. That is a Black and multicultural children's bookstore 
located in Vallejo. That is it for Insight today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You could also subscribe to the Insight podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation, you can email us at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral-Martinez with managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones and our engineer is Chris Feltz. Our show Music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. We'll catch you back here on Monday. Monday.